You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and my co-host, Curtis, will be with us shortly. In fact, he and I recorded this episode last Wednesday. What I've had to do is go back and re-record this intro to account for the Arch Manning commitment. So I think I mentioned this when I did the Arch Manning instant reaction episode, that emergency pod last Thursday night. But Curtis and I originally recorded our latest mailback episode last Wednesday. I didn't have time to post it that night, because I had a few personal things to take care of. I've been moving over the past week, which has been a lot of work. Any of you who have ever done that, which I know is almost all of you, you know how much that sucks. So I had a lot of things going on. Did not get a chance to do it Wednesday night. Was just going to do it Thursday. I had no idea that Arch Manning was going to go public with his commitment to Texas and kind of throw things for a loop a little bit. But he did that. So I wanted to get on there and address that commitment immediately because I know a lot of you were interested in that and we've been following that very closely for a while now and we felt like we needed to cover that breaking coverage in a very timely fashion. Unfortunately, Curtis had some things to do, was not able to get on the episode on Thursday, so I did that one solo. So we had this episode just kind of sitting there and just had to push it back to this week, which is normally no big deal, especially if we're not covering any sort of topical news. But the reason I had to re-record this intro is because there is one question and you'll hear it. There's one question that we got asked by a listener that had to do with quarterbacks. And Curtis and I ever so briefly discussed the possibility of Arch Manning committing to Georgia in our response to that question. So with that in mind, I just want to come on here and re-record the intro, set this up, and make sure you guys know that, yeah, we, we are aware that Arch Manning has committed to Texas. We, we follow this stuff. We follow it very closely. But we already recorded this episode. I didn't want to go out, go back and like completely cut that question out because that was the other option. Let's cut that question out. But talking about Arch Manning and that question, which is a very small part of that question. So we want to keep the rest of the question in there. And it just didn't really make sense for us to cut that one little part out. It just didn't work. So we're just going to give you the episode as is, as it was originally recorded, just with this short explanation so that you don't think that we're certifiably insane and still talking about Arch Manning as though he's a possibility to commit to Georgia at some point, because we know that ship, at least for now, and almost likely forever, has sailed. So just a heads up there, and real quickly before we get to the episode, 
One more thing I want to mention real quickly. I teased this a little bit last week, but I'm going to tease it one more time. Make sure you listen to the next episode later this week because on that episode, we're going to be making a couple of announcements concerning the future of this podcast and content from us in the future. I'm really excited about it and I cannot wait to share it with all of you guys out there. I really want to tell you guys today, but there's just a few little small things that we've got to take care of before we make those announcements, but we should be good to go later this week. I think you're going to like it. At least I hope so, but that is later on in the week. For now, let's go ahead and get to the questions that Curtis and I discussed last week. Enjoy. Today, we have another series of fantastic questions that have been sent in by all of you guys, our loyal listeners. So thank you for that. Always appreciate it. We get great questions, man. Always. Never let us down. So Curtis, let's do it, man. Let's jump right into this thing. And our question of the week concerns something that we don't really discuss a lot on this podcast because as far as I'm concerned, sports talk has just been oversaturated with it. And we like to focus our attention and our conversation on the players, the schemes, the matchups, what is actually happening on the field of play. That's what we try to do here on the Glory UGA podcast. We're not really huge fans of off-field topics. They generally kind of bore us for the most part. But today, we are going to make an exception because Sam, a good friend of the podcast, sent in a question about NIL. And yeah, I know, I know you've probably had your fill of NIL. You're probably done with it. I get that. But this isn't just any question about NIL. It specifically relates to the future of Georgia football And with that being in mind, I think it does fit in on this show. This is something that I think we need to dig into. I think it's actually a really good question. And that's why we're kicking the show off with it as our question of the week. So Sam asks, does Georgia being behind some teams in NIL worry you at all about the future of our recruiting? Curtis, I think this is a fair question. I think we've already seen this impact in, in at least minor instances already. But if you're looking down the road, long-term in the future, Curtis, does the existence of NIL and maybe our hesitancy, I guess, to embrace it the way that some other programs have, namely Texas ATM, right? Does that worry you at all about the future of our recruiting? I don't think it does. My biggest thing is, you know, realistically, we probably aren't going to be able to compete with the money of A&M and things like that with the oil money and things. But I think realistically, Georgia is in a very wealthy area in the fact that you have to think Atlanta is, you know, the capital of the southeast. There's still a lot of opportunities. You're not in some of these small market venues like maybe Columbia, Missouri, South Carolina, like some of these areas that they're not as there's just not as big of a market maybe in the nearby or different aspects to get these kids make money in uh, viewership or just at um, endorsements. I think that it's going to take a more a better effort than what we saw last year, where I think last year we may there may have been a few NIL things, but I think more than anything, we we're just kind of like trying to say like, hey, this is what we've done recently. This is why you should come here. Um, already, you're hearing more people around the program talk about how Georgia's kind of gotten more of the NIL packages smoothed out and kind of have become a little bit better prepared in how to use them, which I think is something that they need to do, but I don't know. I mean, I still think that we'll be a good team, but I just don't know. I still don't think we'll ever beat 
certain people for the amounts of money they spend, but I don't think that's going to stop us from still being a good program. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a fair take there. I have to be entirely honest. I would be lying if I said I didn't have at least some sort of concern about this. I do. Because, I mean, look, this national championship that we just won, yes, we have great coaches. Of course we do. And those guys do a fantastic job. But let's be real. We had the best roster in America. And you maybe could said that two last three years, I think, potentially. At least, you know, that, that's not going to be unusual. It has not been unusual the past couple of years. We've had, I think you look at the 247 talent composite, I think two years, at least, maybe not this past year in 2021, but 2019, 2020, we had the most talented roster in the country, according to those recruiting rankings. I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case moving forward. I think we'll always be one of the most talented rosters in the country. I think as long, and, and I think that's okay. I think as long as you're one of like the top three, four, five talented teams in the country, I think you have a chance to win national title. But I mean, history shows that you need to be recruiting pretty consistently in the top three range, at least in the top five range on an annual basis to have a chance to win national title. That's what history shows us. I mean, Clemson's somewhat of an outlier there, but even they've had some top class. They had number one class. They've had some good class. They also had some classes in the in the mid-teens, but they've still had some great classes with some high-profile players. So I, I do think that this is something to at least consider, and I am at least slightly worried about it because how do teams elevate? How did we elevate? You recruit your way to that point, to that elevation. And that's what Texas A&M is doing right now, Curtis. Now, they're doing it a different way in terms of recruiting these players than we did it, but they are elevating their program to the point that they are going to be competing for national titles on a consistent basis because they're going to have our roster to do it. Alabama's been there. We've been there. Ohio State's been there. Clemson's been there. Why are those always the teams in the conversation? Because they have the best players. And so I, I think you might see some more teams that have the money to spend, like A&M, jump up into that category of play of teams that can actually contend for national titles. And the more teams that there are at that level, the harder it is going to be for us to win it. it we're not going to be as, as different from a roster standpoint as some of these other teams who have those financial resources. Now saying that I do think that we have a lot of financial resources at our disposal. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, do we have the kind of resources that a Texas ATM has over there with their oil money that, no, we don't have those kind of resources, but we have a collective, the, Cl- the Classic City Collective. We have that. We have the infrastructure there. And Kirby Smart, I will say he's been – I think he's been hesitant to embrace NIL. Is, I mean, is that fair? I mean, I don't know. Like, Is that fair? Has he been hesitant? I don't know if he's been overly hesitant. I think some of the, some coaches may have underestimated just how these kids may just only be going places literally just for money. Yeah, I, maybe hesitant is not the right word. I would say he hasn't jumped in, like, into the deep end. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, like, maybe he's waiting around in the shallow end, like, kind of getting, like, the five foot in, but he's not all the way in, like, where it's nine feet, ten feet deep. I don't think he's there yet. And maybe he'll get there. I don't know. We'll see how that how that factors in. But here's one thing that does concern me, Garth. I guess if I had to sum it up, I'd sum it up like this. I think what makes Kirby smart – one of the, if not the best recruiters in America, and he has been for 15 plus years now, is the personal aspect of recruiting. When you get that guy in a room with a player, with a family, with mama in, in the living room, in his office, on these official visits, I don't think there's anyone better in America as a head coach in Kirby Smart. Is that is that out of line? I mean, I think that's pretty fair, Curtis, right? 
I mean, it's hard to argue with it. I mean, people talk about Nick Saban, but I think a lot of that just is what he's done in the past. I don't think it's as much as yeah. the way it's, he it's connects the aura with these kids. of Nick Saban, right? And the success, the, yeah. the track record, the resume. But when it comes to like just the personality, the person, I think Kirby's as good as it gets. I truly believe that. So when it comes to that part of recruiting, the personal, I think that's a big reason. Now, we grind and we have the infrastructure. Kirby knows how to do it. He demands and has high expectations of his coaches. All that matters, too. But at the end of the day, when you're there for the final in-home visit or the final official visit, I would take Kirby Smart as a head coach over anybody in America in those settings, in those situations. So when recruiting has been built on the personal like it has been for so long, Kirby has been the beneficiary of that. And we, with Kirby Smart as our head coach, have benefited from that greatly to the point now that we've won a national title. What I'm concerned about is recruiting becoming more transactional in nature it's like transactional versus personal and i'm I'm not saying it hasn't already been kind of transactional there's always been the element of hey what can your program do for me can you get me the nfl can i be a first round draft pick can you develop me there's always been a transactional part of it but i think the personal has mattered a lot more in the past prior to nil now I'm concerned because I think when it becomes more about how much can you pay me when that's what the players are asking, how much money can you put on the table for me? What's that dollar amount? Can you match this amount? I think when it becomes more transactional like that, it does have the potential to dilute some of what makes Kirby smart and the rest of our staff so dynamic on the trail. And that's the personal aspect of things. I think that that becomes devalued to a degree. And I think when we've been so strong in that regard, I don't think you can say that that doesn't hurt us in some way. I think it does. Um, I think here's an example, Chris. I know nobody really talks much about Florida because they don't recruit. They haven't been recruiting at a high level, decent level, I guess, for a while, but not really a high level since, I mean, maybe Will Muschamp or some of his early classes. But uh, remember the name Kamari Wilson last year, Curtis? Safety? Oh, yeah. We we had Kamari Wilson in the back. I have a very good authority. Kamari Wilson was coming to Georgia. was the silent of Georgia. Told us he was coming. Late in the process, last second, right before signing day, Billy Napier in Florida – and, and uh, well, I, and look, it, there's it's so del- it's so there's so much gray area. Like, is the coach doing it, or how much does the coach know? Is the cl- is the collective who's doing this? But let's just say Florida people associated with that university, boosters, whatever you want to say, put together a package, a financial package for Kamari Wilson at the last second, and we chose to not match that, and that's why Kamari Wilson committed to Florida, and that's why he'll be a Florida Gator. It sucks for him. Great choice, buddy. Have fun with that. But that's just one example of a player that I'm, I have on very good authority that we lost very late in the process because of NIL exclusively. And we've done a fantastic job recruiting him up to that point. Years spent recruiting this kid. The personal, we did everything right. Everything right, except the transactional part of it. Florida got us there. And that's how they got Kamari Wilson, who's going to be, I think he's, I, I'm not going to, Say he's not a good player. This guy's a good player. I wish we would. I wish we would have signed him, but we didn't because NIL has made recruiting more transactional in nature. And so I'm concerned that things like that will become more common. Levius Overton, the number three player in the state of Georgia, reclassified now a part of the Texas A&M class. Why? Why? Because NIL. I mean, think about the guys that we were recruiting heavily last year. Curse that that we were doing a really good, a really good job with Shamar Stewart, Walter Nolan. All those guys end up at AM. Why? Because of the transactional, because of the money. And they can sit there and they can say, oh, it wasn't about the money. Yes, it was. Come on, let's just let's stop with this. Let's stop with this. Of course it was. So I'm in smoke buoy, right? Same thing. He was on our commit list. 
Bear Alexander, they got him for a second. They flipped him from us. Fortunately, we were able to flip him back. But I think there's going to be guys every single class that maybe before NIL, prior to that, we would have gotten, but now we're not. And I and I think that I, you have to say that hurts us to a degree, I think. So, yeah, I, I am concerned. I, I do like what you said about, like, being located in, you know, very close to Atlanta, which is still seen as, like, the capital of the Southeast, right? So in that regard, I do think we're really well situated for like the true sense of NIL, like having sponsors actually pay these guys to promote their products, which is really what NIL is supposed to be. But it's, I mean, we know it's become pay for play. That's what it's become. And that part of the pay for play part of it is where I don't know that if we're going to be willing to keep pace with what some of these other teams are doing. And I'm not saying we won't, I don't know. I will say Kirby smart has, always evolve. It's one of the things that's been great about Kirby. He's always willing to evolve, whether it's from a play calling standpoint, a schematic standpoint, he's always done a great job with the evolution and trying to keep up with, with where football's going. So I I'm confident we'll be okay. I'm not going to say we're going to fall off the face of the earth. I still think we're going to be a top five class year in, year out, but I don't know if we're going to have those, you know, number one classes, number two classes year in, year out the way that we have in years past. I really hope I'm wrong. I just, maybe this is me just being, I just having too much anxiety over it, maybe I, that's fine, possibly, but I do have some concern over it. Curtis, last thing I want to bring up about this real quick. So I do think we're going to miss out on some players, but how much does it hurt to lose a player that is focused on things like NIL and how much money you can pay me? Does that make sense? Like, is there something to that where like we're getting the right types of players, not the players that are looking for the wrong things? I think that it can be like I can't remember. Maybe wrong in his name, Evan Stewart. It's a name that really yeah. comes to mind. Amen. Yeah. Um, with him, it's just. I mean, I think that I can't fault anyone for chasing the money. At times, you want to, but I mean, you really can't. But the fact is, there will be times where kids, you know, it may have been a sign, but it may be other times where you just don't know the the circumstances they grew up in, and is it a short term situation where they can put their family in a better situation yeah look i'm with you i i have no problem with payers getting played i just wish there were there's a level playing field there's never been a level playing field in college football i understand that there's never been there's never been parity i i get all that but i wish there were just you know there was more i wish everyone was playing by the same rules at least and i don't think that's necessarily happening i think some programs are are pushing the limits and some programs are kind of like i don't know if we want to go that far but I, I don't begrudge anyone, any player trying to make money. Like I, that, we all want to make money. Like that's that, that's a fact of life. Everyone goes after the money, of course. So I'm not saying like you're a bad guy if you're a player and you want to make money. But there is something to be said. I think like if that's really the motivating factor for you, how much money you're paying me, it doesn't necessarily mean that school's the right fit for you. That that team's the right fit for you, and you're the right fit for that program. Right now, I have to question the potential commitment of like Ruben Owens, who just committed to Louisville, like. You're the, one of the top running backs in the nation. Right. And I could get going to somewhere like A&M. Like if you're using that money to go to certain schools, but then when you're going to a school that maybe hasn't developed running backs at a rate as these other schools, you have to do start questioning them in that situation. Yeah. I, I do think, especially as we're talking about young kids, I know they have parents and a lot of them have, you know, they're not agents, but I mean, they have runners. We'll say that. And these guys are being pulled in a lot of different directions and they're young. It's tough to make that. I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to have to make this like those lifelong type decisions when I was 18. That's tough. To, some of them were 17. That's a really tough decision to make. 
But I, I do think some of them are making decisions that ultimately won't end up being in their long-term best interest. And that's, that's easy to say, but some, some of them would probably counter that and say, well, dude, I made this bank. I made this money. So like, it's a good decision. But if your goal is long-term get the NFL and be in the right program for you and the right fit for you, but you're making your decision based on money, I don't, I don't know if that always works out for you. So I do like the fact that we're going to players that want to be here and that fit our culture. I really do believe culture matters. And it's a big part of why we won the national title last year. We just had a great culture. Kirby's done a great job of, of engendering that with a player-led program. And I think that matters. But at the end of the day, the talent is really what matters. And that's that's my a little bit of my concern there. And again, I'm not freaking out about this. I don't like lose sleep at night over NIL and what that means for the future of Georgia recruiting. But it is something that I think about at times in the back of my mind. And it's to me, it's certainly something to watch moving forward. I think that's very fair there. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, we spent a long time on that first question. I think deservedly so. That was a good question from Sam. Appreciate that, man. Let's go to another good friend of the podcast. This is a question from Cliff. This is our, I promise, only one quarterback question today, guys. This is the one, okay? So, Cliff, thank you for the question, man. Cliff asks, was Stetson Bennett IV returning this season bigger in the bigger picture beyond 2022 than folks realize? So, Curtis, I, I, I know what Cliff is getting at here. He's getting at, like, recruiting Arch Manning. Do you think there's something to that, that Stetson Bennett coming back this year is actually helping us recruit a guy like Arch Manning? I don't know, because even then you can sit here and say that when you're recruiting someone, like you'll start off on equal footing. It doesn't matter that they have years ahead of you. But I, I, I honestly don't know how serious that pitch is to someone in my situation. Because say he goes to Texas, where you're going to a school where a kid who's going to be there for at least another year in Quinn Ewers. So what's the difference if it was Carson Beck and he stayed this year, next year and went pro, there's no difference realistically. A lot of this matters on the makeup of the kid, you know, different players have different goals or different things that matter to them. You know, they, they there's things that matter university to all players, but they might matter, you know, in dip, to different degrees, you know, they might rank those, those factors differently. So Arch might not care who the competition is. He might not care about depth chart at all. He might think a lot of these guys think that they're just incredible players. They've been told that their entire lives. I'm going to come in. I don't care who's there. I'm going to win the job. And maybe he's one of those guys. I don't know. He is a Manning. I mean, it would make sense if he had that kind of mentality. 
but you just don't know what the makeup of the kid is and really what are those factors that are driving his decision. But I, I don't think it hurts. I'll say that, Curtis, right? Like, I, I think if if Carson Beck or Brock Vandegrift was the starter this year, because that's what would happen if, if Stetson Bennett did not come back, then though, though one of those two, whoever it was, would have entrenched themselves as the starter going in to 2023. With Stetson coming back, I think this is what Cliff is alluding to, is Stetson coming back, that means the job, the battle for that job is going to be wide open in 2023. No one, none of those players in that quarterback room will have, barring injury to Stetson, knock on wood, will have an, an entrenched job coming into 2023. Like it'll be a wide open competition. And I do think the fact that it'd be wide open when none of those guys that are currently in the quarterback room right now having any starting experience, I do think that certainly helps us with Arch Manning. Is that the decisive factor? Who knows? Again, that, that comes down to the kid. I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what his motivations are. Like, what is the driving factor in, in his recruitment? I really don't know. That's only something him and his family can answer. I'm sure I hope the coaches know. But at the very least, is it fair to say it, it doesn't hurt us that it'll be a, a wide-open competition in 2023? Yeah, I don't think it hurts us. But like I'm saying, if, it's, if he ends – I'm with you. I don't think it's the ultimate deciding factor. I think it helps, but I don't think it – could be the one thing to put you over the top. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just it's hard to know that because it's, you know, it's just, you don't know the kid. I mean, we we read things, you read between the lines, but you, we don't know. I've never talked to this kid. We're talking to a Manning. I have no idea. We'll find out. Hopefully sooner rather than later. I want this recruitment to be over so we just know, so we can figure out what to, where to go from here. That's a good question. I appreciate it, Cliff. All right, next question. Another good friend of the pod. Man, we got a couple questions in a row here from guys that – uh have been very good friends here for a while. Our uh, longtime friend, Josh, hope you're doing great, buddy. Uh, Josh asked, how much credit does Jonathan Ledbetter deserve for setting the foundation of the five-tech position under Kirby Smart? And I'm going to take blame for this, Curtis. Josh sent this question in like months ago, and I wrote it down on our list, and somehow it got like, I don't know, it ended up like the bottom. I don't know, man. I just lost track of this, and then Josh reminded me of it. So, Josh, I'm sorry, man, um, but I'm going to bring this up now. Uh, this was more of a, a question that was happening right around, I think, the uh, NFL draft. Well, obviously, with Tremont Walker as a five tech for us, going number one overall. And so, again, how much credit, Curtis, going back to the early years of Curry Smart, does a guy like Jonathan Ledbetter deserve for kind of setting the tone at that five tech position? I think it's a lot of credit because that right now, that position realistically has probably been one of the most unloved positions um, by st- statisticians and everything. I mean, you heard it all the knocks on Trevon. Um, you know, he didn't have the stats that Aiden Hutchinson had. Um, and he stayed the course and it worked out for him, but it's not going to be like that case for everyone. You saw it with Malik Herring. Um, it's one of those positions where, and I think that's the thing though, is like we've continued the tradition because you've had Malik Herring, you've had Trevon Walker, and I think we have some guys who can step in, maybe not the Trevon's level, but still play it very well. And I think the foundation was laid by uh, Ledbetter, who, you know, played for at least three three years under Kirby in that system and really laid that foundation for someone like Malik Herring, who then laid the foundation for Trevon. So I think it has been, um, he's been instrumental, especially at that position. I a hundred percent agree. I think this is a great point by Josh. I, I I'm with you, Curtis. I think he deserves a ton of credit because he was that guy to open the Kirby smart era at that five tech position. He, he played, like you said, about three years for us there played significant snaps and did a hell of a job for us. Fantastic set in the edge against the run. And you mentioned, Curtis, 
that's not a glamour position in our defense. It has not been. I mean, we did a little bit more with Trayvon Walker and allowed him to move inside in certain situations and certain downs and distances to kind of utilize some of his athleticism. But it's just not a glamour position in terms of like getting sacks. That's not what that position is designed to do within our scheme, within our defense. And Ledbetter, I mean, to, to play that position, I think, in our scheme, you have to be very unselfish because you know you're not the guy the defense is set up for to feature. But yet you still play such a critical role, especially in setting the edge against the run, rushing the passer at times. And Jonathan Ledbetter was fantastic at that for us. I, even you know when he was still around, I was – if you guys remember, those who've been around for a while, Curtis and I were, were pumping him up a lot because – we were watching what this guy was doing on a on a game by game basis and was not getting the love for it because again it's not a sexy position in our defense he wasn't putting up the numbers but what he was doing structurally within our defense was critical without Ledbetter we would not have made I mean we had some great players in that defense especially Roquan Smith in 20, in 2017 but Ledbetter I think without him at that five tech I don't know Curtis I don't know if we make the national championship I don't know if we make that kind of run I think he was that good for us especially against the run I, I really believe that. So yeah, I think he set the foundation, and I think we've got. A, I, I think it's. I mean, Kurt, I don't. I'm not trying to criticize him at all, but is it kind of fair to say we've got a little bit more athletic at that position with each guy after Ledbetter? I think so. Yeah, I think Malik Herring was a little bit more. I don't know how there was a huge difference, but there has been a noticeable gap. I mean, of course, because that's what got Trevon. Yeah, that's what made him number one overall. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that Malik Herring was a little bit more explosive than Led was. I mean, Led again, fantastic. I am not trying to to downplay how good Ledbetter was. He was fantastic for us. But I think that Lee Carey was a little bit more explosive, not as big of a gap between those two as what you see with Trevon Walker and, and both of them. But I think we've gotten a little bit more talented. And like, But that's what happens. Ledbetter sets the foundation, and then you can point and say, look what this guy did. And then you get another guy who's a little bit more talented. And then you can see what he does, and he kind of raised the bar a little bit. And then you can use that to recruit another guy like Trevon Walker. And then you can use Trevon Walker, and you can recruit a guy like Michael Williams who is another fantastic player who's going to be playing heavy five-tech force, I think maybe even this year as a true freshman. So, yeah, I think John the Ledbetter deserves a ton of credit. And I'm really glad you brought this up, Josh, because I think Led is one of the more underrated players in the Kirby Smart era. And um, I like for him to get a little bit of love. So, appreciate it, man. Very good one. All right, moving on here, Curtis. Uh, this is a question from DJ. Appreciate it, man. And DJ asks, is Oscar Delp, so tight end, true freshman, tight end Oscar Delp, is he going to be able to show off his skills this year, or is the tight end room too full for him to get that, that amount of playing time? I think that he, while he's super athletic and there will be times he'll get reps, I don't know if he's going to have the opportunities like you saw with Brock Bauer just because – well, I think it all comes down to Darnell Washington staying healthy. And even then it's going to be difficult because I can't sit here and say right now that he is better than Bowers or a Rick Gilbert realistically. Well, we definitely can't say that now with any sort of authority because we haven't seen it at the college level outside of G-Day. So like, it's all projection with him. But Bowers, you're right. Like we, have, like we have proof of concept with Bowers, plenty of that. We have less proof of concept, but enough proof of concept with a Rick Gilbert at, at LSU. I know it's a different offense. But we have we've seen this guy go for about 600 yards as a true freshman. I know he didn't play last year, but we we know what he can do. We know what kind of player he is, and we have we have a, we've seen enough from Darnell to know what he's capable of. But the wild card here is Oscar Delp. I'm extremely high on Oscar Delp. So if you guys aren't familiar with him, tight end, top 100 player in this 2022 recruiting class, I think he compares 
very similarly to Brock Bowers in terms of his athletic ability and size. I think they're very similar players. You know, I, I told you guys coming into last season of all the players in recruiting class, the guy to watch out for, I told you it was Brock Bowers. I was that high on him. I love what I saw from his high school tape. And watching Oscar Delp's high school tape, I know this is a projection. And it's, you know, so take it for what it's worth. Take it, for, take it with a grain of salt. But what I saw from Oscar Delp's high school tape was a very similar level of athleticism and pass catch ability and ability in the open field and what, as what I saw from Brock Bowers when he was in high school. Now, it's a different game at the college level. We know that. And a lot, mentality plays a lot of this and plays a role in this as well. Work ethic, all those kind of things. It's very rare you can come in and make that kind of impact as a true freshman. But I think Oscar Delp has the skill set. I think he has the tools. I think he has, he has the athleticism to be able to do those things. I think the bigger question is, where, where does he fit in? Because we know Brock Bowers is that guy. We know that. He, the offense is going to be built around Brock Bowers this year. We know that Arik Gilbert is an extremely talented player. And we don't know how much he's going to fit into the offense, but like we have a pretty strong idea, especially if you follow what happened during spring practice. I know there were some injuries that tied in, but I think he's going to be a major part of what we do offensively as well. And we know that Darnell Washington is going to fill a role as well. We know that we use him more in line, but he can also be a mismatch out there in certain situations, especially in the red zone, which I don't think we ever use him enough in that role, but he can be a mismatch as well. So we know those three guys are going to play and they're going to play a lot. Curse, a lot of 12 personnel, a lot of 13 personnel. The question becomes, how much do you play a fourth tight end? So Kurt, like in your estimation, like I, I know it's hard to put a number on it, but like how much do you think Oscar Dub is actually going to play this year? I don't know realistically, barring injuries, he plays all that much. And I think that's the reason because last year, I mean, Brock is a monster, yes, but everything was perfect for him too. And the fact that Darnell got hurt and never may not have been as fast as he was or everything going into it. And then that allowed him time to shine. But the thing is, we have people that have his skill set of Delps with Brock. And then he's not the blocker yet that some of the other guys may be potentially to get him playing time like that. So I just don't know how often it's. it's realistic it is to expect us to stay in four personnel or even get him in there in three personnel barring injuries yeah I mean he's he'll be in the rotation I think he will play I think he's that talented but he's right now at least early in the season he's not going to play ahead of Brock Bowers I can tell you that at no point in the season when he play ahead of Brock Bowers I don't think he's going to play ahead of Arik Gilbert right now just from a physical standpoint you know Arik's you know he's a third year guy in college I mean no he has not he has not played two years but this is his third year out of high school and then Darnell, again, as an inline blocker, fills the role that none of the other guys, they can, they can block, but not like that. You know, he has that size. So I think Delp will play. I think he'll be in the rotation. We, have, we like to keep guys fresh. But you're right, barring injury, I don't see him playing significant downs. Um, I do see him getting in. the guy. I, I would say, I don't know, man. What do you think? Like five to ten snaps a game, maybe? That's what I was thinking. That's kind of where I was. What you saw out of James Cook when everyone else was healthy, or not healthy, but like when he was a freshman, sophomore, like he didn't get all the touches we thought he should, but okay. it, you know, it was hard to get him in there, and I think that's where he could be. That's a that's a that's a good analogy there. So a guy like James Cook, who was an underclassman, like you you knew the talent, you could see the talent. He made plays when he got an opportunity, but it was hard to get him on the field because you had guys ahead of him, like guys like DeAndre Swift, right, that that had to play. And I think that's kind of the situation that Oscar Delp is in right now. It's not a reflection on his ability, his talent level. That guy can play, and he's going to be a big-time player for us. I really think he's next in line. But 
you know, the fact is we have some big time players ahead of him right now. So I think five to 10 snaps, probably what you would see barring injury. But I will say like Darnell, you know, he missed spring practice. He missed the first half of last year. Bowers had labrum surgery that he played through last year. And so, I mean, hope, I hope to God, both those guys are good and they're fine, but we've had injuries there. So maybe he ends up playing more. And I don't think, like, I think he would be perfectly fine in that role. I just don't think you know, barring injury, he'll see as much playing time. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, we are back here. Got a couple more questions to close things out with today. And uh, these are kind of some fun questions. Uh, This first one is from Sean. I I like this question, Curtis. I'm curious where you're going to go with this. And this is a question like different. Everyone out there is probably going to have a different answer. But Sean asks, which of our rivals do you hate the most? That's the first part of the question. And then part two of the question, which non-SEC team that isn't necessarily a rival do you root against the most? So, Kurt, let's take the first part there. So, of our main rivals, I mean, I would classify our rivals as Florida, Georgia Tech, Auburn, Tennessee, and, like, maybe you can throw South Carolina in there on the fringe. Maybe. So, of, of those teams, who do you hate the most? I hate Tennessee the most. Um, Ooh, okay. They still – I just – they're just – they think they're – especially now – you know, when Pruitt was hired, he was already better than Kirby right away. And then you heard, you know, the greatest recruiting staff ever was up by them. It's just been a constant underachieving, yet all you hear is how great they are. Brick and by then, brick, baby. Don't forget about that. Yeah. I mean, going all the way back to Butch, you know, it's just – I just absolutely can't stand their fan base. I mean, just like in baseball, I was cheering for them to lose so badly because I just don't like them being good in literally anything. Yeah, man. The delusion is strong within that fan base. And every fan base has delusion to a degree. But come on, man. Like, I, they might take the cake, dude. Like, they they have some insane level of delusion when it comes to football. I mean, they were good in the 90s. I get it. But you know what? It's not 1993 anymore, guys. It's not. Time changes. Just deal with it, right? Um, yeah, Tennessee. I hate Tennessee, dude. I really, really hate Tennessee. I love beating them because like like they I will say this about Tennessee I'll give them credit here they care right like they really care and on some level I respect that I do respect the fan base that cares but man dear god like they they care almost I, I don't know if you can care too much but I, the fact they care so much and mean so much to them I think that's where the delusion comes from they were they they were really good for a stretch about 25 years ago and they just can't come to terms with what their program is right now. And I know that's tough guys. Like I know that sucks. Like you were riding high for so long and, and now you're, you're irrelevant and they're, and they're just so desperate for any sense of relevancy. So I do hate Tennessee. Uh, their fan base, like going up to Knoxville when we play them, it's always, I mean, it, it's, it's wild, man. Like they, they have some crazy people and they like to talk trash. It's, and that's the thing. Like I would say 
Tennessee and South Carolina fans on road trips talk more trash than any other fan base. Has that been your experience? Yeah, um, it's not, I haven't been up to South Carolina, but Tennessee, I just it's just one group I've never had anything good to say. Yeah, there's a strong. Um, I don't. I don't want to be too critical here. I don't want to be mean, but yeah, there's there's an element there if you kind of know what I'm getting at. But they, they talk so much trash, dude, and so does South Carolina. I mean, South Carolina's backed off of it a little bit the past couple of years, but man, like when they were rolling under Spurrier, there is no fan base I've been to, no visiting environment I've been to where a fan base has been more vociferous and just honestly out, downright like nasty and disgusting. Some things that were said to my wife. In Colombia, I will never forgive that fan base for. I just at, completely out of line stuff. And I usually let things roll. I always let things roll my back. I never say anything back. Even in South Carolina, I didn't. I just don't engage in that. Like, what good does that do? It does. It's nothing I do. But, like, they're probably the closest I've come to, like, attacking a, a rival fan was in South Carolina. And I'm not even going to, like, relate the story of what happened because I just – I can't I, – I can't say it on this show. But just – uh. Uh, some nasty stuff. Let's just say that. So, yeah, I, got, I I have a fair amount of hate for both those programs. And this changes for me. Honestly, it, it really comes down to, like, who beats us. Like, who, like when South Carolina had beaten us for a couple of years under Spurrier, like, I, I hated them with a deep passion because they're not on our level. And they should never beat us like that. And, like, when a program and a team and a fan base that's not on our level has something over us and they just crow like they did, oh, man, that eats at me. So I really had some hatred for them for a while. But – I kind of backed off that a little bit now because they've been irrelevant. Um, And I will say any year that Georgia Tech beats us, which never really happens, but any year that has happened, it's happened a couple times in my lifetime, it's Tech. For that one year, until we beat them and set things right in the world, it's Tech for me. That makes sense, Curtis? Like when we lose, like, like you, like, come on, Curtis. Like when we lose to Tech, is there a worse feeling on earth? No. Because then people you never even knew were tech fans all of a sudden are tech fans. Oh yeah, like they just like there are there are no tech fans. Like right now, as bad as tech is, like you can't find a tech fan. They're all under every like the deep the biggest rock you can find. Like they're under a boulder, man. You can't find these people. But by God, they beat Georgia. Everyone wants to be a tech fan. It's like, oh my God, shut your face. So when it's when they beat us, which hopefully will never happen again, because honestly, it should it should never happen again. It should never happen in the history of the world, but it has. It's for that year, it's tech. And then when we beat them, like, it's like, oh, yeah, you suck. Who cares? I don't care about you anymore. But I guess, like, in general, like, on an average year, it's probably Florida. Um, just because, like, you know, they've traditionally been, you know, the top rival when it comes to the SEC East. And it's more of a, tr- a traditional rivalry going back years past, the whole Spurrier thing. And then we had the Meyer thing. Like, there, there's some bad blood there. And I go to Jacksonville every year, and um, the Florida fans there. Now, I know it's like, there's a certain element there in Jacksonville because it's the cocktail party and people are losing their minds. But if you, if you guys have been in Jacksonville, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I'll try to explain it. So like when you're walking from downtown Jacksonville, I'll say at the, the Hyatt Regency riverfront there, and you make the walk down from the, from the riverfront to the stadium, you come up, you basically go down this road and there is a bunch of tailgating going on down that strip. And it's mainly Florida fans. It's Georgia fans, a lot of Georgia fans, uh, they don't do what I do and stay in Jacksonville. They stay in the Golden Isles of Georgia, right? St. Simons, Amelia, all that kind of thing. And they come in like the day of the game. But there's a lot of Florida fans still getting out there. And that walk down there, like, I, whatever. They'll talk trash. I ignore it. I don't care. Whatever. But when we lose after the game, walking back, it's unbearable. Like, it's truly unbearable. And just, I hate them. I, I hate that fan base. I hate Florida. So, in general, it's Florida. But, again, that changed me based on, like, wins, losses and all that. Um, second part, Curtis, 
Which non-SCC team that isn't necessarily a rival do you root against the most? Uh, me, definitely have to go with USC. Or, I mean, not USC. Oh, okay. uh, they're, they're up there. I'm actually thinking Ohio State. Sorry. Yeah, Ohio State's up there for me. I know a lot of people would say Notre Dame, and I probably would have five or six years ago. But after the trip to South Bend in 2017, I've changed my tune on that. They treated us so incredibly well that there's no way I can say Notre Dame. Like, I don't cheer for Notre Dame, but I don't root against them anymore unless it helps us. Like, I don't, I like, I don't, like, take some absurd joy out of Notre Dame losing games like maybe I did prior to that trip. Because I just, like, I think it's a really classy, cool, Midwestern, just good people kind of fan base. For the most part, every fan base has some crazies, but, like, they're pretty good people, and I respect them. I respect that program. So I, I'm not going to say Notre Dame anymore, although I know a lot of people might still say them. I think when, when Urban Meyer was at Ohio State, I would say them for sure. And probably still Urban Meyer. Probably yeah, I don't Ohio like State. Ryan Day. I don't like Ryan Day anymore. Remember, they were going to score 100 on Michigan. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I'm not a big Ryan Day guy either. I know Charlie would definitely say Ohio State. I know for a fact she would say that. Uh, Clemson, but Curtis, is, Clemson kind of counts as a rival though, right? They do. And but we used to play them annually, so I think I, I can't. But, if you're saying non, I cannot arrival. I can't really say. I would say Clemson, but I think they're kind of a rival. So yeah, I think yeah, I, I think would probably cool. go Ohio State. I'd probably go Ohio State there. I, I do take a lot of joy in Ohio State losing for sure, for sure. All right, Chris, I think you have time for one more question here. Let's do this one real quick here. I've seen this question like making the rounds on social media uh, past week or so, and so we got the same question. This is from Alex. So I appreciate the question, Alex. Alex asked, what was the biggest play in the national championship game? We've probably already addressed this at some point. I can't remember. It's been a while now. But, Curtis, let's, let's talk about it one more time, even if we have addressed it before. In your mind, what was the biggest play in the national championship game on January 10th, 2022, in the year of our Lord? I may be wrong, but I think it was the third down stop after we scored the touchdown to um, – A.D. Mitchell. I know exactly what you're talking about. It was a, it was a, I think it was William Poole. It was William Poole. It was William Poole. Yeah. I actually go with Bolton. I, yeah, I go with that play because the fact is we get that stop and allows us to score that next touchdown. If we don't stop them on that drive, we don't know. It could have been a completely different situation. That's an incredible call curse. I did an episode. I don't think you were on it with me. I did an episode, you know, a couple weeks after the national championship, maybe like a week after the national championship game. When I, I think I listed like what I thought were the ten biggest plays in the national championship game. That play was pretty high up on my list, and that and that was one that nobody really talks about because it wasn't a touchdown score. But you're exactly, dude. That was a massive play because we're only up by one, right? And they got yeah, we're up by there. one. And if they, if we're desperate and having to throw the ball, I just don't know how successful we would have been. In the fact that I, it just seemed like it kind of took some pressure off when we got that stop. Yeah, I, I think that's a massive play. Um, God, that was a huge play. That took a lot of pressure off us there. We get the ball back, and then, we, of course, go down there. We run uh, the little RPO. We run the toothpick play, or I guess it was a floss play with Brock Bowers for the touchdown, go up by by eight points there. And I'm, I'm pretty much off the game away. I know a lot of people, Curtis, would say the Keeley Ringo pick six. Why is it not the Keeley Ringo pick six? Um, I mean, the thing was we were up by eight. Um, it takes a drive. And a two-point conversion. I think the pick six is like the most one of the most memorable plays. But if I'm thinking biggest play, I just can't go with that because it wasn't a game that or a play that changed 
took right. the game out of doubt. That's not what you're right. That's not what changed the game. That's not what won the game. It, it was the punctuation, the exclamation mark at the end. And what a way to end a game like that, to put that exclamation mark on it and punctuate the win. But that dry curse, I, I, I didn't think, I, I felt like we'd already won the game, honestly. Like, I, I, I didn't think Alabama was going to come down and score and get the two-point conversion. I felt we had already won the game. And I know technically we hadn't, so that was the punctuation. But when Brock Bauer scored that touchdown, I felt the game was over. That was what I felt. For me personally, that wasn't as big of a play. I didn't feel as big of a play, even though, yes, I know it sealed the deal and, and the game is over after that. But that wasn't, for me, the biggest one. One of the biggest ones for sure, but not the biggest one. But all right, guys, that does it for us today here on the Glory UGA Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. We've got a lot of great stuff lined up for you over the next couple of months leading into the 2022 football season. We are about to wrap up our scheme theme month here, the month of June, and then we will be on into July. And just around the corner, we will be bringing you our annual Scouting the Enemy series, which of all the things that we do on this podcast is probably year in, year out, the most popular series that we run. We've done a couple different things. You know, we've done, you know, best player series. We do the scheme theme series, but it's the scouting the enemy episodes, which we have been doing since the very first season we did this podcast years ago. Those always seem to be the episodes that get the most downloads, get the most listens, and get the most feedback from you guys. So I'm excited about that. We've been working on those here for a couple of weeks. And we will be rolling those out about midway through July. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Scouting the Enemy, what that is is where we take each Power 5 game on the schedule and we go through the schedule game by game, start from the top all the way to the end of the season, and we give you as in-depth of a preview of each team that we're going to play in the coming season that you will find anywhere. We've been watching the tape all summer long, all really all offseason, to be quite honest with you, especially once the basketball season was over. Then the film watching kicked into high gear. We went into overdrive with that, preparing for this summer's Scouting the Enemy stuff. And I'm serious, guys. These Scouting the Enemy episodes, I mean, they are months in the work. It's not something we just sit down a couple days before the episode and say, hey, here's, here's what we got to say. No, we really dig into these teams, watch all their games, all the tape, dig into the numbers, and bring you guys, again, what we try to make the most detailed preview of all the teams that we're going to be playing in the coming season. So we got that to look forward to, along with a bunch of other stuff leading into the 2022 football season. So stay with us the rest of the summer through the season. I promise you guys, you will not regret it. But thank you guys for listening. We always appreciate you. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.